everyone. I am going to read today's passage. If you would turn to me to 1 Corinthians 13. So 1 Corinthians 13. Give you a moment to get there. If you don't know where that is, it's just after Romans. All right. So 1 Corinthians 13 from verse 1. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging, clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. It does not, dis does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Thanks, Chris. Actually, put this aside for a second. I trust you are all well. Um, we're taking a bit of a detour from our uh, sermon series on First Peter, and uh, as you may or may not know, I suppose, uh, we've been going through our daily devotions. Uh, we compiled this little devotions for the month of October, and, uh, and Joe thought, oh, it might be good to uh, preach alongside the devotions that we've been looking through uh, each day. And so I've chosen to uh, preach this morning on the devotion that I wrote uh, which is actually for next Sunday, so it's a little bit in advance, but um, it's the one I wrote, so I thought, oh, maybe it's appropriate that I speak on that. Uh, it is, of course, a chapter that you probably are somewhat familiar with or have heard before, possibly at a wedding. Uh, now, this chapter, chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians, is actually a little bit peculiar. Uh, if you've read the rest of 1 Corinthians, chapter 13 really does stick out. Um, the first thing you kind of notice is it's quite poetic in nature. Uh, it kind of has this rhythm, this cadence or flow uh, about it as you read it. Uh, and that's quite distinctive to the rest of the letter, which is um, a lot more kind of meticulous in its logic and argument uh, that's put behind it. And the second reason that it kind of sticks out is because it's very positive in nature, that it's very idyllic. It talks about this notion of love and and at first reading, it seems like, you know, it's a, it's a chapter that fits into some sort of romantic love story. And that's probably why it's so popular at weddings. Uh, but if we consider the context of the book as a whole, which we should obviously always do, then we get a, a quite different picture. Uh, the reason that Paul wrote this letter is primarily because the church was actually riddled with problems. Uh, they were split into warring factions. There were some people who pledged their allegiance to Paul, some to Peter, some to Jesus. Uh, they had great difficulty with all sorts of sexual immorality. Uh, in chapter 5, there's a case of, uh, a case of incest. Uh, there's prostitution, there's adultery, and there's even promiscuity. And it was all being tolerated in this very uh, paganized, uh, influenced kind of church. Uh, believers were bringing lawsuits against one another. They couldn't figure out their difficulties, and marriages were in shambles. Uh, people were eating food sacrificed to idols without considering their fellow believers. 
Uh, the worship services themselves, they were dis- disorderly. They were descending into chaos. And for some, when they took communion together, it turned into drunken feasting. And that's where chapter 12, 13, and 14 come in. All these three chapters are about spiritual gifts. And sandwiched between 12 and 14 is this one, chapter 13. You see, the Corinthians were flaunting their spiritual gifts. Some of them wanted to claim the more prominent ones. They wanted to be the the face or the eye of the church body. And they wanted to forget about the the, the foot or the toe. They wanted to get all the attention for themselves. And that's where Paul writes this chapter on love. You see, he didn't write this as a sermon for some young romantic couple who were embarking on their honeymoon, perhaps like Simon and Viv right now. No, he actually wrote it for the most corrupt, the most disorderly rabble of a church that was full of conflict, full of strife, rampant with immorality. It was targeted at selfish sinners who were flawed in so many ways. And it's with this lens that we begin to understand that the love that Paul is describing is not about an emotion. It's not about some flowery feeling. It's not some sappy, sentimental notion. No, it's a gritty, it's a committed, it's a hearty, robust, gutsy kind of love. Now, that's not to say that this chapter is not relevant for newlyweds or that it's not relevant for marriages or in other contexts. Of course it is. Uh, but it is particularly pointed towards believers who struggle to get along with one another. There is this modern-day parable of two men who are journeying through the mountains. Now, these two men are traveling in opposite directions, one to the east and the other to the west. Uh, they're traveling along this narrow track, on one side is the polished cliff face, and, and, and on the other side, to the left, is a ravine hundreds of meters below. And this path is barely wide enough for a single person to traverse. And as the men come towards each other, and as they face each other, they soon realize that there is no way that either of them will be able to pass by the other because of how narrow the path really is, seemingly stuck. It's not until one of the men decides to lie down and allow the other man to walk over his torso that the two men can both continue on their way. This is the kind of gritty love that Paul is describing in chapter 13. It's a love expressed in action, an action undertaken fully willingly, whereby I am prepared to lay down my rights, my pride, and my life so that I can serve you for your benefit. That's the kind of love that we're going to find out more about today. Let's ask for God's help to do that. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you're a God who loves us, that has demonstrated your love so clearly to us in your son, Jesus. And God, we thank you that you're not a God who's left us to our own devices. You're a God who cares immensely for us, and you're a God who wants us to live with love. Father, I pray that you would open all of our hearts and all of our eyes and minds this morning. I pray that, God, that you would speak to each of us and show us how you want us to live, show us how you want us to love. And, Father, I pray that we would yield to your spirit as you point out those things that you need us to grow and to change and transform and become more like your son in. Help us in Jesus' name. Amen. Verses 1 to 3 says this, If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. If today I happen to deliver the most perfect, the most timely, the most challenging, the most interesting and funny sermon that you've ever heard in your entire life, if I was able to do that today, but I didn't do it out of a love for you or a love for God, then it would be as good as me clanging some cymbals together and just leaving. 
It would be as good as me banging the cajon, not that I can do that very well, and just leaving. I could speak it in any language, even a heavenly one that only angels could speak, could understand. It could be the finest oratory unrivaled by any other in the history of mankind. And yet in the eyes of God, it would be completely meaningless. In the economy of God, it would be better by far that I, that I had uttered just a single word in love than had given such a sermon. Imagine that you'd been given and granted all the mysteries of all knowledge, that you know everything that is humanly possible to know, everything that's ever happened in the past, everything now in the present, and everything that's to come in the future. You understand all the deepest questions of philosophy, psychology, science, mathematics. Imagine you had all that knowledge. And imagine, coupled with that, you had a faith that was so huge that you could literally command mountains to jump into the sea. Your faith could cure cancer, COVID, the common cold. If you could do all of those things, you'd be a pretty big deal, wouldn't you? You'd think you'd be a pretty important person. And maybe in the world's eyes you would. But what does Paul say in verse 2? Without love, you are nothing. A big fat zero. Nothing, nada, zilch. Without love, all the knowledge and all the faith in the world amounts to nothing. If that didn't drive home the point, then Paul goes on. He says, you could donate everything you own, your house, your car, your money, and even the shirt off your back. In fact, I believe the Greek, uh, when you translate the original, it actually suggests that not only do you sell everything that you own and everything that you have, but you literally convert all that into money and you go hand by hand giving it to every single person that needs it. You could do that and you could give it out of obligation. You could give it under compulsion. You could do it because of peer pressure. You could do it for self-glory or for pride. You could do it for, to build up your own reputation. You could do it because you want to make a good impression or your own personal recognition. You could do it to try to earn your way into heaven. You could do it to relieve your guilt or just to make yourself feel a little bit better. And if you did it for any of those reasons, then God says, congratulations, you gain absolutely nothing in return. You could even give up your own life, the ultimate gift. What more could you give than that? You could be the most willing martyr for the Christian faith, and yet if you do not have love, well, don't expect God to be impressed by that. You see, these verses tell us that unless the primary motivation for what we do is love, then it will produce no value. It will not amount to anything of value, and we can expect to receive nothing of value from it. Without love, I am but a hollowed-out drum of emptiness, achieving nothing. Love is the essential ingredient that gives anything we do meaning and value. It is the meat and potatoes of life. It's the substance behind any of the spiritual gifts that we have been given. God's intention is that we are to emulate the love that he has, given, that he has shown to us. We're to emulate that love back to himself and to those around us. That's our primary function, to love God with all our heart, all our soul, strength, and mind, and to love others as ourselves. Any choice or action that I might act in or do that is void of such love is fruitless. From an internal perspective, it achieves nothing. 1 John 4, 8 tells us that God is love, that he is the source of love, that he is the epitome and definition of love. Everything he does is loving. He's demonstrated love to us in the giving of his son, Jesus, for our sin. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15, For Christ's love compels us because we, can, we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. The love of Christ is the reason that Paul now lives and breathes. Because Christ has died for us, we must now live for him, not out of obligation, but because Christ's love is so overwhelming, so 
all-encompassing that it compels us to. There's no other right response to the all-surpassing loving kindness of God that he has bestowed upon us. And so it begs this next question, how do we love? If love is the essential ingredient that makes anything doing worthwhile, then how do we make sure that we're doing it with love? Well, what does love mean? In the Greek, there are three main words that are used for love. You've probably heard them before. They are eros, phileo, and agape. Eros describes a romantic passion or infatuation and all that that encompasses, including sexual desire. That's where we get the word erotic from. Phileo is a brotherly love, and that's how you would describe a bond between good friends or family. Agape love is a selfless, sacrificial, unconditional, other person-centered love. To put it another way, eros is a taking kind of love. It's about what can I get from you. It's all about me and what's in it for me. Phileo, or friendship love, is both give and take. It's a mutually benefiting love. It's about you and me, both giving and taking. Agape, sacrificial love, is all about giving. It's how can I benefit you, irrespective of what I may or may not get in return. Its focus is you and how I can bless you. You see, you can't have an eros or phileo love for an enemy because you don't get anything from them in return. But you can have an agape love for them, an unconditional, a it-doesn't-matter-what-you've-done-to-me kind of love. Agape love is a choice or a commitment to love someone, even if it is unrequited. The agape love is not based on feelings, romance, or sentimentalism. And God's shown us this love. Romans 5.8 and 5.10 But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In verse 10, For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? While we were still God's enemies, hostile to the God who created us, he still loved us and gave us his best. So how do we express this love? Well, Paul gives us 15 qualities, and all of these qualities are actually all expressed as verbs in the original Greek. They're all action words, doing words. Now, it's a little bit hard to understand that when we read the English because most of them are translated as adjectives. Uh, For example, in verse 4, we read that love is patient. But in the Greek, it literally says that love suffers long. That's an action, that's a verb, to suffer for a long time. When it says love is kind, it's saying that love is the action of being kind, or we would say to show kindness to someone. Now, this is significant because agape love is ultimately expressed through action, through doing words, not merely feelings or emotions. It follows then that this list is a list of agape love do's and don'ts. And in this list, uh, it starts off with two things that love does, followed by eight things that love doesn't, followed by five things, and four of them are things that love always does. Hopefully you'll get that. Um, but because of time, I actually am not going to go through the entire rest of the passage. I'm actually only going to get up to the end of verse 5. Um, perhaps Joe will finish it off some other time. I don't know. Good luck, everyone. So the first one, love is patient. Love is patient. Would you consider yourself a patient person? Uh, if I were to, well, if someone's very honest, if I were to ask you, uh, if I was to ask someone that you live with, perhaps your spouse or you know, your family, would they agree with your self-assessment that you are a patient person? Uh, as I previously mentioned in the King James Bible, uh, this uh, part of the verse is translated, love suffers long or love is long-suffering. Uh, we think of patience uh, generally as just being able to wait for something. Like, you know, the other day I waited in line for KFC. Uh, but the idea being conveyed here is not just that of waiting. Uh, rather, it's the ability to endure suffering for a long time. 
even though winning at KFC sometimes felt like that. Um, uh, being patient is, is choosing to love someone in spite of their many flaws and imperfections, even if they take a long time to change. Um, I like how the NIV study Bible puts it. It says patience does these three things. It constrains wrath, endures provocation, and preserves peace. It constrains wrath, endures provocation, and preserves peace. So to act patiently is to refuse to get angry when provoked repeatedly and choosing instead to keep the peace. How patient are you when provoked repeatedly? I'm guessing not so much. What happens when your husband leaves his clothes on the floor for the 490th time? Or your wife leaves her hair stuck to the side of the shower the same number of times? I'm not saying Chris does that, by the way. I've just heard that some people do. Now, for married couples or people that you live with, you know, these issues um, should be addressed. Don't get me wrong. It's, patience doesn't mean that we ignore these things or pretend that these things aren't happening. But love chooses to exercise restraint for the long haul. What about you when, you know, you're at school or work at church and, and that particular person keeps wasting your time over and over again? They repeatedly frustrate you by perhaps making the same mistakes over and over again. Or when you're on holiday and you're meant to be relaxing, but people are just constantly being rude to you instead. You see, anyone can get angry. Anyone can blow up. Anyone can get fed up and seek payback. But who can suffer long? Who can, no matter what you do to them, not be moved to anger or rage? Well, the agape love of God can. Love chooses not to retaliate seven times, 70 times. It chooses to remain calm when provoked. And that takes a heart that is prepared to overlook repeated offenses. Unfortunately for us, God is patient with us. 2 Peter 3.9 says this, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Despite the thousands of times that we fail, God's mercy still remains. God suffers long through all our offenses and all our sins, our mistakes made constantly, daily, repeatedly, belligerently, and yet he remains committed to us for the long haul, patiently awaiting our slow transformation. Love is patient. And secondly, love is kind. To be kind is to be considerate and friendly, helpful or generous towards someone else. Uh, when I was younger, probably about 13 years old, I was with my little brother after playing a game of basketball. And my brother was only four at the time. And my dad, he bought us from the canteen um, these killer pythons. I don't know if you know what killer pythons are. They're these long snakes, jelly snakes. They're great. Um, and my brother, he'd kind of he'd made a friend you know, um, just as I was playing or whatever. And, uh, and this friend was, you know, was clearly watching us as we, you know, ate our um, lollies and was clearly uh, missing out. Uh, so I knelt down and I decided to give him half of mine. I broke it, half of it off and, and gave it to him and I didn't really think much of it. I mean, here I was, I was a teenager pursuing my MBA career. What was half a gummy snake to me? Uh, and so uh, as we were leaving, uh, on the way out the door, a complete stranger, someone who I had no idea who she was, uh, maybe she was the boy's mother, I, I don't actually know, but she took me aside, she accosted me, she looked me in the eyes, and in the most genuine way, she told me how she'd seen my incredible act of kindness and how grateful she was and how wonderful it was that I had done such a selfless and kind thing for that little boy. It's funny that I still remember this act of kindness that she had shown me even until today. Ironically, my kindness to this young boy was just a fluke, really. Um, hardly worth mentioning and, you know, probably out of character for my young teenage self. She, on the other hand, was intentionally kind. Her kindness took courage. She went out of her way, ignored social convention, and had the courage to speak bold and generous words to me that would stay with me for a long time afterwards. You see, being kind is often not a large or grand gesture. 
Sometimes it takes very little on our part to be kind. It does, however, require us to be intentional, to be considerate, to be thoughtful and aware of the opportunities that we have each and every day to show kindness to those around us. It could be just one word of affirmation. It's giving a hand with the dishes or the laundry. It's helping someone in the rain who doesn't have an umbrella. There are hundreds of ways that we can be kind to those around us, and they usually cost us little more than the mental energy required from giving. Love is patient, and love is kind. But what Paul really wants us to do here is to actually put the two together. You see, patience means that we are long-suffering. But not only are we to absorb provocation, but we are to repay it with kindness. Unlike in my example of the random stranger, agape love is kind irrespective of the recipient's worthiness. Yes, it's easy to be kind to someone you like, and maybe it's even easy to be kind to a stranger, but can you be kind to someone who annoys you, to someone you don't necessarily like? Can you be helpful and generous even to the one who causes you to suffer long? That's where true agape kindness shines. Even corrupt tax collectors can show love to their own kind. There is no reward for that. You see, when you first read this passage or heard this passage, you probably thought that it was reserved for young couples on their honeymoon. No, this is a gritty, a messy, an unconventional, undeserved kind of love. This is willingly lying down at the risk of being trodden on so that your fellow man can benefit. Love is both patient and kind. Paul then goes on to describe seven ways that love does not act out. And the first of those is love does not envy. Envy or jealousy wants what someone else has. And it's not just that. It goes so far as to then want them to not have it. You can be jealous about someone's possessions. You can be jealous of their phone, their holiday, their wedding, their car, their house, even their well-behaved kids. You can be jealous about someone's position or prestige, the number of followers they have on Instagram, the job title they hold, the money they earn or their position at school or at church. You can be jealous of someone's abilities or looks. How come they can play the piano so well, sing so beautifully, run so fast, speak so eloquently, evangelize so effectively when I can't? How come they look so effortlessly beautiful and get all the attention? You see, someone who was lacking in love wants those things for themselves. It was out of jealousy that Cain killed Abel because he had more acceptable offering. Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers because their father liked him more. The prodigal son's older brother despised his father because he was jealous of his younger sibling. Jealousy, when undealt with, will gnaw at your insides and eventually gives rise to death. The antidote to envy or jealousy is, of course, to choose to love instead. Look what Paul did in Philippians when other preachers were trying to spite him and preach out of envy and rivalry. He, Paul recognized their ill intent, but he also rejoiced because Christ was preached. Their intention to harm him and his reputation gave rise to love and rejoicing that the name of Christ would become more famous. You see, love sees someone who is better than you, someone who is more talented than you, someone who is more accomplished, someone who is more blessed, and instead of wanting what they have, chooses to be glad for that person. Love wishes them well and desires that they would only multiply in that success. Ooh, how hard that is for us to do sometimes, isn't it? Love is glad when someone else prospers and receives the accolades. Love celebrates others when they do the same things we do, but with better results. Love does not envy. Paul goes on, love does not boast, it is not proud. Boasting is heaping praise on oneself or bragging. In Greek, the word used literally means windbag, a bag of wind, to literally inflate one's ego with hot air. An example of boasting would be like me saying, and this is an example, at Simon's Bucks two weekends ago, 
I completely destroyed all the other guys at go-kart racing. What a great example. And to be clear, I didn't have the most experience at go-kart racing. And yet I was able to outmaneuver, outperform, speed pass, and comprehensively obliterate everyone else on the track. Are you clear on the example? That's bragging. <laughs> now, if I did say those things, that would be a poor example of love. And that would actually be particularly poor because it's technically untrue. Ken did have a significantly faster average time than me, although I was awarded the first place medal. And we all know that love rejoices with the truth. You see, boasting is a symptom of someone who wants to draw attention to themselves. Listen to that. It's announcing to everyone else, these are the reasons why you should praise me. And closely related to boasting is pride or arrogance. You see, love does not boast and it is not proud. Pride, pride is having an exaggerated view of oneself. It's one's attempt to elevate themselves up in order to push everyone else around them down. It comes in the form of thinking that you're better than someone else, that you are holier than thou. It's what the Pharisees thought about themselves over the common people. They thought that they were closer to God because of their strict moral regime. But the reality is they were further from the furthest from recognizing Jesus for who he was. The antidote to boasting and to pride is humility. Paul could just as well have said, love is humble. William Carey is considered the, the father of modern missions. He spent his early years as a cobbler and became one of the greatest linguists the church has ever known. It's reported that Carey translated parts of the Bible into as many as 24 Indian languages. When he first went to India, some regarded him with dislike and contempt. And at a dinner, par at a dinner party, a distinguished, a distinguished guest hoping to humiliate Carey, said in a loud voice, I suppose, Mr. Carey, you once worked as a shoemaker. And Carey responded humbly, No, sir, not as a shoemaker, only a cobbler. See, Carey didn't make the claim that he made shoes, only that he mended them. How different the church and the world today would look if we had the same attitude as William Carey if we had the same attitude indeed of Christ Jesus, who did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. You see, humility is seeing one's own life as viewed from God's perspective. In God's eyes, we have nothing of any spiritual value to offer him in exchange for the many sins that we have made against him. All my intellect and good deeds, my fastest go-kart lap times, even if offered in true agape love, do nothing to pardon all the times that I've rebelled against his authority and continue to do so. Isaiah 64, 6 says this, All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. When it comes to salvation, nothing we do, no righteous act can make even one iota more acceptable to God. William Carey understood that even translating the Bible into 24 different languages did not make him any less reliant on God's saving grace. Humility is recognizing your desperate need of him and that our sins would sweep us all away except for the grace of God. When we internalize this fact, we'll never want to brag about ourselves again. Love does not boast, it is not proud. Paul goes on, love does not dishonor others. In the NLT and in the NKJV Bibles, it uses the translation, love is not rude. Paul uses the same word elsewhere in other letters, in this letter as well, uh, to carry the connotation of disorder or chaos. Uh, for example, in, in the church services at Corinth, People were trying to hijack the service by standing up and speaking over the top of others, competing for one another for attention and recognition. You know when you're at a movie or some sort of gathering, perhaps a wedding, 
and you're trying to listen on what's happening up front on stage, but then people behind you start having a full-on conversation so that you can't hear. That's an example of rudeness. That's introducing disorder or chaos at someone else's expense. And when we do that, we show that we don't respect other people. You're putting yourself first because you think you and your conversation is more important than those around you being able to listen. Being rude means that you think other people are unworthy of your respect. Who are these people anyway? They're nobodies. I don't have to consider them or their feelings. Another example that's so common today, and I'm guilty of myself, is ignoring others when we play with our phones instead of engaging them with conversation. Love, on the other hand, honors others. It goes out of its way to validate others and legitimize their point of view. Rudeness says what you think and what you say don't matter to me, but honoring someone means we intentionally give them our attention and respect. We show them that they are worthy of our attention and time. There's nobody who does not deserve it, nobody beneath us, because God loves each of us and we are all in need of his mercy. Have you ever thought that this person, so-and-so, is just a drain on my time and my energy? Love never thinks that. And thank God that God doesn't view us the same. Love honors others by lifting them up, by acknowledging them and showing them respect. Love offers them our best. Love would never belittle or put someone else down out of rudeness. Love does not dishonor others. Paul keeps going. Love is not self-seeking. At the heart of agape love is selflessness. Now, we can only be all of these things. We can only be patient or kind or humble or honoring when we are other person focused. Or perhaps more correctly, when we are God focused. The opposite of being self-seeking or self-centered or self-serving. Now, we, of course, are naturally all like this. Uh, if you observe young children, they don't need to be taught how to take toys or how to take lollies for themselves. That happens naturally. But what they do need to be taught is how to share those things. And in fact, Jesus recognizes this natural human instinct, and it forms the basis for the second greatest commandment, that is, love others as yourselves. That is, love other people just as you naturally love yourself and look out for your own best interests. You don't need to be taught how to want the best for yourself. You just naturally do. All of us want to get ahead in life. We all want to live more comfortably or enjoy good things. We're always seeking what we think is best for us. The best holiday, the best job, the best car to drive or clothes to wear or food to eat. And that's not necessarily wrong unless we're not loving God above that and, other and others above ourselves. What we should be asking is, what kind of holiday, holiday does God want me to have? What kind of job does God want me to do? What car would God have me drive? What clothes would he want me to wear or even what food to eat? And second to that, if we're to think of others, then what about seeking the best for those around you instead? What is the best holiday, not for me, but for my wife? What is not the best job for me, but the best to benefit my family? What car should I buy that would serve the church better? What clothes should I wear being considerate of my brothers and sisters. Philippians 2, 3 and 4. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. Even though Jesus is the King of Kings, he did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's the attitude that we're meant to have one that looks outward for the benefit of others. Love doesn't seek out the best for oneself. It seeks out the best for God and for others. Love is not easily angered. Now, this one is translated as irritable in the NLT. We all know someone who is easily angered or irritable. 
They're really easy to spot because it happens often and often in dramatic fashion. People who are easily angered are really hard to be around. You feel like you have to walk on eggshells whenever they're there. Being quick to anger is a symptom of a lack of self-control. It's an inability to resist responding to provocation. Someone who is irritable responds rashly to even minor offenses made against them. Paul was never angry over personal injuries or offenses. He always lay aside his rights for the advancement of the gospel. He was slandered, he was threatened, he was flogged, he was beaten. He was ridiculed, imprisoned, and mistreated in so many ways. And he had every right to be bitter or to be angry or to demand justice for his mistreatment. But despite everything that he endured, Paul refused to react with anger. And likewise, Jesus never hated those who wronged him. He turned the other cheek and prayed that God would forgive them for their ignorance. Now, there are, of course, things that we should get angry about. We should have a righteous anger when God is blasphemed. We should not tolerate Christ's name being slandered or Jesus misrepresented. We should be sensitive to offenses made against God, and we should be up in arms over ungodliness, over injustice or corruption, over the exploitation of the helpless, the spreading of heresies, or the malignment of God's word. We should be sensitive to the offenses against God, but impervious to the offenses that are made against us. Sadly, we often get it the wrong way around. We show little interest in correcting the offenses directed at God, and we're overly uh, reactive to the quibbles that influence us. We should be slow to anger when people wrong us. Now I recognize my own need to practice this. I recognize I'm getting increasingly, increasingly irritable by bad driving on the road, possibly because of my superior go-kart skills, I'm not sure. When someone gossips about you or when someone tells lies about you, you should refuse to be angry. When someone wrongs you or mistreats you, we shouldn't let that give rise to retaliation. We shouldn't complain to, to them about others so that you can gas bag about what happened to you. This is what it means to love your enemy. And that's not a sign of weakness. It's an exercise of self-control and of love. Anybody can give in to anger. Anybody can mouth off a few words or fly off the handle and let the perpetrator have what's coming to them. That's just our sinful human nature rearing its ugly head. Ephesians 4, 26 and 27. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry and do not give the devil a foothold. And Matthew 5, 21 and 22. You've heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Any, again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka or fool, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Vengeful anger leads to bitterness. It leads to hatred and to death. If we so much as get angry with a brother or sister, we are subject to judgment. That's because in God's eyes, if we cross the line of hating them in our hearts, then we may as well have murdered them with our hands. Love would never do that because love is not easily angered. And the last one for today, love keeps no record of wrongs. The, ter the terminology that uh, Paul is using here is similar to that of an accounting ledger. That is, every transaction is recorded and accounted for. And what this really means is don't keep grudges. And this is really the other side to the same coin. When it says don't get easily angered, it means we don't react, we don't blow up. But by the same token, we're not to keep a record of these wrongs, and we're not meant to keep these offenses bottled up inside of us until one day it explodes in the future. If we are keeping a record of wrongs, then we're holding on to past hurts. When we do this, it means we allow that past event to keep hurting us again and again, even if the perpetrator is remorseful or apologetic 
and has moved on with their life. When we've been betrayed or deeply wounded or had our trust broken, it's difficult to let go of past hurts, I know, whether justice has prevailed or not. But keeping this pa- these past hurts locked in our memories will lead us to bitterness and resentment. Love will ultimately choose to forgive and not to recall past grievances. It chooses not to use them as future ammunition against those who have wronged us. It's refraining from using the phrase, remember that time when you. And that's not to say that we automatically trust the other party and remain vulnerable to their wrongdoing again in the case of infidelity. A serial cheater or offender must rebuild that trust and show evidence of real change, and that might take a long time. But whether they change or not, we must be willing to forgive them and choose not to bring up the ledger of their offences. Hebrews 8, 10 10 to 12. This is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I'll put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I'll forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. You see, in God's great love, he forgives us. He chooses not to remember our sins any longer. We should be horrified at the thought of how long that list of trespasses against God would truly be if he were to hold it against us. But if God can do that, if he can wipe the slate clean for a wretch like you or for me, then surely he can wipe wipe clean the slate of those who have wronged us far less. You may not be able to forget the wrongs that have been committed against you, but you can choose not to dwell on them, and you you can choose not to count them against those who have hurt you any longer. Love does not keep grudges. It throws the record out, never to be retrieved again. And finally, there are two ways that we can respond to a message like this. If you're like me, you're tempted to think of all the people in your life who could really benefit from a sermon on loving others. Maybe you know someone who's really impatient or arrogant or rude or irritable, someone who brings up the past all the time, perhaps. And in your head, you think, oh, I really hope they hear that message this morning and change for the better. But if that's all you get from today, then I would urge you to investigate the scriptures for yourself again. You see, God doesn't want us to leave today thinking, oh, this message is so good for all these other people, but not for me. No, that would be pride talking. That would be hypocritical. That, that should ring alarm bells in our heads that we have a distorted view of ourselves. And if that's you, then I pray that you would re-examine these scriptures. God wants to challenge and transform you into a better reflection a more accurate representation of his son, Jesus. Or perhaps you're on the other end of the spectrum. Maybe you thought today that you knew what love was, but on closer inspection, you realize how far short you fall of God's perfect standard. I know I'm not patient. I know I react way too quickly. I know I don't show kindness to those around me. I secretly struggle with longing for what others want, for what others have, let alone being glad for their successes. I enjoy being the center of attention, and I'll embellish the truth a little to impress others. I'm too busy figuring out what is best for me, let alone considering what's best for those around me. I struggle to let go of what so-and-so said or did to me all those years ago. I don't even love my own family or friends sacrificially. How can you expect me to possibly love my enemy? I am undone, I am not capable of such love. And if that's you, and I know it's me, then you're right where God wants you. And you are absolutely right. You can't love the way that God does. But God in you can, and he will if you allow him. He can change you from the inside out. And if you come to him with that attitude, then he will. He will perhaps painfully, reveal to you the areas in which you need to grow. 
He'll give you opportunities to increase your long-suffering. He'll make you aware of opportunities to be unconventionally kind. He'll press his finger firmly on moments when you need to exercise humility, exercise restraint or self-control. He isn't finished with you yet. Loving others the way that God wants us to is about yielding to his spirit. It's emptying ourselves of us and letting God fill us up. And in some ways, it's a bit like trying to empty the ocean with a bucket. You can't do it on your own. You need the one who commands the wind and the waves to supernaturally part the water for you. The one who offers living water that alone can quench your spiritual needs. The agape love of God is about sacrificial giving without any expectation of return. It's the essential ingredient for living a life that counts for eternity. God demonstrated to us this love by giving us Jesus, even though he knew he would be rejected by so many today. God gave him for us all, and he patiently awaits for all of us to come back to him in repentance. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you are a God who loves us, who loves us more than we can even imagine or comprehend or understand. No words can describe it. Father, I pray that we would understand your love for us and that God, out of a heart of gratitude, out of a heart of thanksgiving, out of a heart of wonder and awe of you, that we would choose to love you in return and love others as ourselves. God, your word today is not an easy one to digest. There are so many areas in which you want us to grow in maturity, to be transformed in our thinking, to be transformed in our action and love for one another. And God, sometimes it just feels so impossible to do. But Father, I thank you that you've given us your spirit, that we can be different, that we can love others how you want us to. I thank you that not only have you shown us what that love looks like, but you've empowered us to do so. Lord, I pray that we would not give up, not say it's all too hard. But God, I pray that we would strive to love you, that we'd be compelled by the love that you've shown us. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters and myself today. I pray that you'd help us to be patient, to be kind. Lord, I pray that you help us to use the opportunities in front of us to show love to others. Father, I pray that everything we do would be motivated by a love for you and a love for others. I pray that you would change us and make us into the church that you want us to be. And pray that you would do it all for your glory and not our own. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.